Gatsby, you got In the Heights, you got Hamilton, all, all these plays, Summer in the City, just like is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Hello, hello, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everyone. I'm excited to be back this week after my one-week hiatus away. Hopefully you had the chance to tune in last week to Jacob talking with Jeffrey Sweet. It was a great conversation, but I'm excited to be back this week. We're excited to have you back. We're excited to be talking about a great script this week. But let me just echo what you just said. If you haven't listened to the conversation that I had with Jeffrey Sweet last week about Lemon Sky by Lamford Wilson, please go check that out. We, we love to have guests on the podcast. And, and while Jackson and I love to talk about scripts, it's also nice to talk with other people, too. Yeah. And Jeffrey Sweet had just an abundance abundance of fantastic stories about the theater making world, about the script, about his relationship with Lanford Wilson, including some really fun anecdotes about things that he talked with Lanford Wilson about, specifically about the Lemon Size Sky script, right, about yeah. its autobiographical nature about how it came to be. It's a it's a fascinating conversation if you're a writer or a theater thinker and you just want to listen to somebody who's been doing it a long time talk about some of the strange parts of the process of doing it. Yeah, no, it was a great conversation. You should definitely take some time. Go and check it out. It's just last week in the podcast feed there, or I don't know when you're tuning in into, into this at this point. It's the one right one before this one. <laughs> one right before this one. <laughs> Tune into that one. It was a great conversation. And today we're also going to be having another, well, I don't know if it's going to be a great conversation or not. That's part of it being unscripted, but I'm looking forward to the well, conversation. Let's, let's have a positive attitude. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to the conversation about street scene by elmer rice yeah this is a uh it's gonna be a really fun play to talk about because it's such a such a strange script such a like an abundant idea from elmer rice so i think a lot of people may not recognize the name elmer rice if you're a uh, american theater historian or you've been around the block a while you may know his name you may especially know his name from the adding machine which is sort of wildly his most popular script although street scene was his most well lauded script which is uh, part of the reason why we're talking about that one today but this is like a play from the early part of the 20th century. So it's it's going to be fascinating, I think, as we read it in our modern context, as we think about not, not only some of the things that the characters and themes both carry over fruitfully into our world and do not carry over fruitfully into our world, but, but also some of the stuff that I think still is so powerful about the script is what this great theater mind was doing theatrically in the play. And there is a lot being done in this script. Yeah, there's a lot of like subversion happening, a lot of like, you know, <laughs> a part part of it is like there's a lot of what passed as progressive in the in the early 1920s yeah, sure. going on <laughs> that maybe doesn't feel that way anymore. Um but but even even that is being delivered through a subversive uh you know, uh through the through the method of theater being delivered in a subversive way. It's just a cool cool play, a lot going on. Exciting to get that chance to talk about it. Uh, but before we jump into it, I do want to take just a second and thank our patrons over on patreon.com slash no script podcast. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We love getting to have these conversations. We love getting to have special guests on and doing themed months and, and just having these unscripted conversations about theater's best scripts and the folks over at Patreon make that possible. Thank you all so much for your contributions to the show. If you're looking for a way to help out the show, patreon.com is a great way to do it. Um, we love getting to do the show. It's a last night. Not a free endeavor. There's a lot, uh, a significant portion of podcast 
podcasting fees and uh, plays bought and time in. And so our patrons over on patreon.com slash podcast make that all possible. You'll find a number of different tiers. Lowest one being just $1, $12 over the course of a year. And uh, at that, 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 that tier, you get access to patron-only posts, as well as there's another tier that you get uh, producer credit for the show. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a great it's a great uh, way to stay in touch and be a part of the NoScript community. So if you're looking, whether you're just tuning in for the first time this time and loving what you're hearing so far, or if you're a longtime listener looking for a way to be a part of the community a little bit more, head on over to Patreon.com/NoScriptPodcast, and we will see you over there. Big thanks to those of us who are supporting us on Patreon. And now back to the script. Here we go. All righty. Well, Elmer Rice, uh, playwright, theater advocate, director in the case of Street Scene. He's born in New York City in 1892. Uh, born to a Jewish family. However, this was a Jewish family that, that were not practicing Jews. In fact, his grandfather was this uh, staunch atheist and was uh, highly politically active in America uh, when he emigrated here, but also like was highly politically active in Germany where he emigrated from. He was a participant in the German Revolution and sort of carries some of those ethos with him as he moves to America and passes that down to his grandson, Elmer Rice. And you see uh, some of that persona come through in the play, but certainly some of the ideals that sort of formed who he was. He became a highly politically active uh, human being in terms of being an advocate and also an artist. Um, and what his theater was doing was really motivated and born out of that. He actually graduated law school in 1912. That's what he went to school to do. He ended up leaving the law like two years later in 1914 because he had decided he wanted to be a writer. Um, he, he wrote this play that was his, his first play and it was a huge success. And it was one of the first examples that we have. And we'll start to see, um, Elmer Rice as a, a theater inventor come into play here because he, he was one of the first people who tried the technique of reverse chronology, right? Telling a story backwards. Um, and it worked really well on stage and it was this huge success for him and launched his career as a writer. Um, in 1923, of course, he produced the, he, he wrote the adding machine. Again, that's really the script that you know him by name for took the world by storm. Um, you may know that in 2007, the adding machine became a, uh, an off Broadway musical, which had a big long run there. He, he's Elmer Rice is known for all of these um, really critical, highly political, often really controversial scripts. A lot of his scripts that did less um, that that less thing, less stuff that was theatrically inventive, just don't. They didn't have any life. Right back then, they really didn't have any life, and they really have not carried through to now a hundred years later. Um, but some of his plays where he really is uh, grasping at something theatrically, like The Adding Machine, like Street Scene, are still around, and for good reason. He he had a lot of success as a screenwriter. Um, in 1932, famously, he visited Germany and he heard Hitler speak, um, and it was profoundly impactful to his sense of how the world was going to change, obviously in a negative way. Uh, he came back and wrote a brilliant uh, play that was uh, anti-fascism uh, in 1933 called We the People. He ended up serving as the Dramatist Guild president for a while, one of the very early presidents of that project in 1939. Uh, when the Federal Theater Project started, you know, a big, important moment in American theater, he was the director of the New York office there for a long time. Um, and actually, uh, sort of in line with his character, he left that job because he was pro as a protest to the way that the uh, Federal Theater Project was, in his opinion, limiting the freedom of speech, especially in regard to some of the newspaper theater projects that were going on at the time. That's a whole fascinating part of American theater history. If you don't know much about it, check out some of that stuff. Uh, he was a champion of like things like the ACE, the early ACLU. Um, and, and, and so that's sort of who he is as a person in the world. He ends up, uh, passing away in 1967. 
street scene was a play that f- was f- actually finished as a piece of work in 1928, uh, but it, he just could not get the thing produced. People rejected. I mean, producer after producer after producer rejected it uh, because of how hard it is to produce. I mean, it's it's a very challenging script to do in terms of cast size, in terms of, I mean, I'm a director, and to think about how I could possibly rehearse this play, yeah. how you could get all of the timings, all of the things that happen one on top of the other. I mean, it's, it's a, as Jackson will tell you, it's a very highly naturalistic portrait of a New York City street. And to try to capture that, it feels a little bit like, actually, interestingly, coming after the Lanford Wilson discussion, it feels a little bit like Balm and Gilead. Like, how yeah. do you wrap your brain around the operations of doing a show like this? So it takes forever for it to get produced. When it finally gets somebody who's willing to do a production, the first person that they get to direct the show just walks out. The director starts <laughs> rehearsing and the director's like, I can't do this. This is impossible to stage and leaves the project. And so Elmer Rice steps in and directs the play himself. Uh, this play won the 19, uh, it, I'm sorry, it opened in 1929 at the Playhouse Theater, New York City. That's the production that Elmer Rice directed. And then in, later that year in 1929, it won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. And remains on that list to this day, of course. To give context, uh, a year before that, a play by Eugene O'Neill won. So that's kind of where we are in the development of the American theater. Uh, it, it did get produced regularly kind of from that point on, once he proved that you could actually stage it throughout the world. But it's interesting as you sort of look back at some of those productions and the reviews, uh, around the world, like outside of America, and even frankly outside of New York City, the productions were just not quite always successful. That's especially true internationally just because this play is so culturally specific to America, to specific kinds of neighborhoods in America, in New York City, that it's really tough to translate um, all the sort of melting pot cultures that exist in the cast, the way those cultures conflict and and, and come into um, even peace at times with each other. Just, it's hard. I can imagine it being very hard to translate culturally and you see that in the way the productions were received overseas uh it was adapted to the screen by elmer rice himself in 1931 of course that starred the the uh the fabulous estelle taylor uh, it was adapted into a musical in 1947, and uh, Elmer Rice wrote the book for that. And the lyrics were by Langston Hughes and the music by Kurt Wheel. Uh, Betty Field was in a television adaption of it in 1948. Uh, there were actually two more subsequent television adaptions of Street Scene, and that makes sense to me. As a piece of <laughs> film, the challenges of the script actually, to my brain, sort of cl- lock into place a little bit more graspably. Uh, those were 1952 and 1950 were the other television adaptions. There was a 1996 revival by the Willow Cabin Theater in New York City. There was a 2010 revival in Chicago by the National Pastime Theater. And then um, the, the sort of the the capstone revival for this that is uh, more contemporary is in 2013, the Brave New World Repertory Theater in New York City stage what I think is probably the preeminent way to stage the show, a found space production in a neighborhood in Brooklyn on location. Audience were standing on the street and watching the play happen on a real street in Brooklyn, this production of the play. That's just the, gosh, that's just the beginning, just the, uh, the very <laughs> surface level world life of this play, which is now closing in on 100 years old. Yeah, yeah. And and to uh, I'll, I'll I'll echo that theme just a little bit. I'm going to give you like the surface level synopsis of this play. However long Cause... you thought my part of that was, <laughs> if Jackson were going to synopsize this play, it would just be the rest of the podcast. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's just so many characters and they all get like their own little like at least enough lines to like value them as individual characters and like I could do deep dives on at least 20 characters. But I'm going to focus on a couple families um so i'm gonna start and, uh, just with... to just to be clear that's not an exaggeration no. like that's not jackson saying like oh 20 like you could do 
character arcs, yep. like just f- fully described character arcs for like 20 plus people. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so the, the play takes place in uh, 1920s in the, uh, in a brownstone apartment in New York city. Now brownstone apartments, if you don't know what that term is right away, just think of like, whenever you think of like a film shot of someone coming out of their apartment in New York city, if, uh, with the exception of, if you're thinking of rent, don't think about rent. Every, every almost any other time someone like steps down off of their stoop from the stairs onto the sidewalk of the cities of New York, those are brownstone apartments. Um, and they're, they're fairly famous. Um, uh, and and the whole thing takes place uh, right there, right on the front stoop of these brownstone apartments. And and throughout the course of 24 hours of time, roughly, um, you get to know a bunch of the families of this tenement, of this apartment in New York City. You get to know uh, the 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 Joneses, the Joneses, and the Kaplans, and uh, and the uh, the Olsons, and the Florentinos. Here we go. Here we, Here we go. go. <laughs> yeah. So so these are the kind of big families. They're all uh, a number of them are all out of, right at the beginning of the play, and they're all just kind of having this free flowing conversation. A couple names that I'll pull out of there just for your attention because I'm sure we'll be talking about them. Emma Jones is kind of this this uh, the the busybody of the apartment. She she frequently makes her opinions known about everyone and anything that everyone is doing. Um, uh, you have uh, the Kaplans, who are, are a Jewish family, uh, who uh, the the the, uh, the patriarch of that family is Abraham Kaplan, and he is often at his window reading his newspaper in Hebrew um, and and uh, kind of commenting a little bit of a Bolshevik leaning, um, or, or, uh, or like a maybe, yeah, maybe early stage communist <laughs> leading um, and, uh, and will often interject into conversations with that sort of leaning. His son, Sam Kaplan, will come up later, so keep that stored away, as well as his daughter, Shirley Kaplan. You also have the Olsons. Uh, Carl Olson is the uh, the building manager, the the janitor, and he kind of rolls up. Uh, the Olsons, uh, Carl and Olga, are both uh, Swedish. Um, and uh, then the, the uh, Florentinos are also there. You have... Uh, uh, Greta Florentino is there at the start of the play, and Filippo uh, Florentino, and they are Italian. Um, uh, I believe the the uh, the the, uh, the 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 culture of the Joneses is a little bit up in the air. It's perhaps Polish, um, but it's also just kind of New York, kind of Americanized New York a little bit more. Um, the Kaplans, the Olsons, and the Florentinos are all. Uh, first-generation immigrants. They are all uh, speaking, uh, uh, clear, clear that English is their second language and speaking with uh, some sort of a dialect in the show. And and that, that becomes a pretty important part of the goings-on. There's also the Buchanans, who are mostly upstairs, but they're a somewhat important character. They're having a baby, and a lot of action uh, rotates around them. Um, there's also the Hildebrands, and they uh, they uh, their plot kind of weaves through rather quickly, but it's important. They're getting kicked out of their apartment, so a lot of the characters end up talking about them. The other big family, and the family that we're going to follow for the rest of the synopsis, <laughs> the, the family around which most of the plot rotates, is the Morants. Now, the Morants are made up of Frank Morant and Anna Morant, and then their children, Rose Morant and Willie Morant. Anna Morant, um, the mother, is uh, known in the, comp- the, the apartment complex as likely having an affair. Um, the, the, the characters kind of note that, that she's been kind of chasing after this, uh, milkman advertiser person. Uh, his name is Steve Sankey and he makes an appearance. He walks on stage and kind of heads off towards the drugstore and Anna Morant during one of the conversations that she's having with the door, uh, at the door with everyone kind of walks off in the same direction. And then there's lots of gossip back and forth between them. It's pretty clear that a lot of people in the apartment know that there's something between Anna, Anna and Steve Sankey. Um, but, uh, uh, and that Frank maybe knows or maybe doesn't. It's a little up in the air. There's a lot of, though, um, uh, while they they are, uh, especially Emma Jones thinks it's disgraceful that she's having this affair, um, doesn't directly tell Frank about it. And uh, Sam Kaplan, who I'll get back to in a moment, um, kind of actively guards against Frank finding out about it and and plays, uh, plays uh, defense for Anna a little bit. Um, 
The nature of that we'll get into a little bit more, but Frank thinks uh, Frank is a pretty overbearing, strict husband. Uh, his line that he says pretty often is, as they're talking about the changing times and the changing expectations for a family, his, his line over and over is, not in my family, they're not going to be no different. He keeps saying over and over that he's going to follow these traditional-ish values. And the Morants are, are, again, a very Americanized, very New York, um, maybe you know French or English far enough back, but they are New York. And so he has a lot of this kind of like, we're going back to the way things used to be. We got to figure this out. We got to get back to family values. Why is everyone divorcing everyone? And a lot, you get get the sense that he knows a little bit more about this affair than maybe he's, he's even willing to let on. Or the is other part, suspicious about it. Yeah, at least, at least suspicious. He hasn't caught them or anything at, at the start of the play, um, but, but he's suspicious about it. They have a son, Willie, who is mostly just a kid who runs around in the street. <laughs> he has a scene that's, that, that, that he's like talks about getting picked on. It's sad, um, but we're not going to focus on that. Um, we're going to focus more on Rose, who um, Rose is uh, uh, Frank and Anna's daughter, and she works in a real estate office. And uh, this is another point of contention for Frank and Anna, um, Frank wants her home more often, doesn't trust the fact that she's working more now. And this is one of the things that everyone keeps saying, well, times are changing. You gotta, gotta keep up with it. And he's like, no, I'm not going to keep up with it. Um, and, uh, Rose, uh, returns home after having worked late the, the first night, the first act of the play after, um, there's been some discussion back and forth around Anna and Anna runs, runs off after the milkman. The milkman walks across, uh, while Frank is home, but they don't connect any of the dots yet. There's just threatening looks kind of glanced back and forth between them. Eventually, Rose comes home uh, with her boss, who is Harry Easter. Um, uh, he, uh, th They are uh, kind of uh, flirting, at least, have just been on a date. Um, he's certainly flirting uh, quite a bit more heavily than she is. She knows that he is married, though, so she's trying to, like, keep that back. And also, she has at least some feelings for Sam Kaplan, um, who again is uh, the, the son of Abraham Kaplan. Uh, they live in the building. And Sam is this kind of philosopher, lawyer, poet, dreamer character um, who uh, is is also in, in love with Rose. But um, some of the family divisions and and the, frankly, racist divisions between the families are keeping them up apart. The, uh, the Morants and the Joneses um, Emma, especially of the Joneses, the busybody um, kind of voices that she couldn't believe that she, that they would ever let their daughter marry someone of Jewish heritage. So yeah, there's like both the the Kaplan family and um, some of the other tenants in the building express like uh, you should not marry someone who's not your own kind you know, sort of ethos and, um, r both to their credit, both Rose and Sam totally disregard that. Right. They're like, right. we, they, they never quite make it happen romantically, but neither of them give that part of it any mind. And that feels like where the playwright lands, right. To you too. It's not, I, I don't agree, feel yeah. like the playwright is like writing his racist tendencies into the characters. He's just portraying how these multi-ethnic neighborhoods at the time, some of the conflicts that, that would have occurred. Yeah, I, I agree. Observing the 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 conflicts while still also observing the way that they live very intertwined with each other's lives and, and yeah. the kind of goings on that they that they kind of carry these prejudices right in the same sentences as they all both yell and help each other quite a bit. Um the other important character who floats through is, is Filippo Florentino. He's a, a, a gregarious Italian man who comes in and uh, is, a, is another kind of life of, of the group. Um, but but Rose, uh, especially in it kind of drives the later part of it. She comes home late. She has this conversation with Sam about whether or not they can love each other or not. It's clear by the end of the act that they do love each other, but uh, are perhaps not going to like land on anything concrete for now. And uh, she has a conversation uh, with her mom and and kind of lets her know that she knows uh, there's some some affair going on and probably best to like try to not do that anymore mom so that uh so that you can uh basically cater to uh the i mean her argument is that she's worried what her father will do if he finds out and especially because he's probably been drinking recently um 
And uh, Anna's response to that is, I mean, I, I she 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 like uh, basically says, you know, what is life for if we're just going to be miserable all the time? And we start to get the window into Anna's life of this kind of oppressive relationship that she has with Frank um, and, and the kind of brokenness of that relationship. That's the wide swath of act one. And I'm going to like sum up act two even shorter than what I just did, because act two, um, everything kind of quickly unravels. It's the next day, the morning after everyone kind of starts their day and goes about their business. Rose goes off. She has a funeral to go to from the owner of the real estate. So she meets up with her boss who she's kind of uh, going there as a date with sort of kind of maybe um, Frank goes off for the day to he's an actor, by the way. Um, he's uh, so he goes off to his auditions for the day and the goings on of the apartment continue. Um, uh, eventually, Steve Sankey walks by and Anna calls down to him and invites him up, saying that Frank is gone for the day and that Rose won't be back for the day. And Willie, the, the boy, is out for the day. So uh, uh, Sankey comes upstairs and they close the shades and uh, there's some more business that goes on. Sam uh, steps out and kind of sees the shades closed and sits on the steps, knows what's going on, and then Frank returns for some reason, an unspecified reason. Frank returns, notices the blinds are closed, shoves his way past Sam, goes upstairs, and in some offstage violence, uh, and as well as some onstage desperation, a window is broken, we see Steve uh, Sankey at the window, and we hear... Uh, see him pulled away from the window, number of gunshots occur, and then just pandemonium ensues. <laughs> a whole other 10 characters start flowing in and out of the scene. Um, police the, officers police and ambulance officers. people and yep. random neighbors and spectators. <laughs> just a whole bunch of more people react to this violence. Um, uh, Frank makes it out of the house and kind of threatens people with a gun and uh, manages to make it away and go hide somewhere for a little while the 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 whole sort of uh rose comes home and and sees her mother has been shot the scene kind of uh spins to an end um uh with with, with that uh, and then we kind of advance a couple hours into the day um maybe that evening or, or or a couple hours go by and they're still trying to find frank rose is trying to deal with um uh she she comes back after having been to the hospital and kind of helping her mom or being with her mom as she died. Um, so she's trying to prepare for the funeral for that. Um, all the while, we're interacting a lot with Emma Jones and a lot with Sam, who is kind of uh, attached to Rose for the rest of the scenes. At one point, uh, Harry Easter, her boss, comes in and offers his help, but she says, no, I don't want to be beholden to you. He's also been trying to get her to go on the stage so that basically he can buy an apartment for her and have access to her all the time. So she, fi she finally says no to him and that she wants to kind of uh, make her own way. Um, and then they find Frank, the police find Frank and kind of drag him through the scene. Um, he has a moment uh, of saying, I don't know, it, it becomes clear that he shot both uh, his wife and Sankey. And he kind of has this moment of, I don't know what I, what I did. I was a blind rage. I was drinking, blah, 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 blah. I'm so sorry. And is hauled off to jail. Um, and we're left with Rose at the end of the play, trying to decide what's the best way forward for her and Willie now that her mom is dead, now that her, her dad is in jail. And as we know, there is an ongoing threat from the, the, the kind of piece that the Hildebrands play is that they're getting kicked out of their apartment because they couldn't pay the rent. So she knows that there is a, a time coming when she needs to kind of have the reality of we're probably going to get kicked out of here. How do I take care of my brother well? And you have the, the the kind of final scene between her and Sam around uh, along the way. Shirley, who is uh, Sam's brother, has been confronting Rose with a lot of um, suggesting to her that she not get into a relationship with Sam because Sam needs to keep going with his schooling and continue on to his law degree. And so she finally uh, kind of says in this last scene, I think we need to take a break and kind of figure out what's going on with our lives and um, uh, try to try to make it on our own. And then maybe we'll find each other someday. The play sort of ends with this sort of sad farewell of Rose um, saying goodbye actually to Shirley, um, who has kind of uh, been by her side as she has walked through this kind of horrible time, um, even as she advised her to not date her brother. And uh, Shirley kind of sends her off. That's sort of the kind of wind down of the play is, is this kind of tragic moment. And out of it, Rose has to go and figure out a new way to be in the world away from this apartment, most likely. And, and I think the, the final note of the play is the couple uh, who come to look at the apartment that the Hildebrands 
were thrown out of. And that's really the final image of the play is this new couple going to move into this building right. where just earlier that day, a wife and her, her the guy she was having an affair with were shot dead and a poor mother and her two, single mother and her two children were tossed out on their ear. And here they are to sort of continue the cycle. And cycles really are at the heart of of what this play is. I mean, it's it's it could not almost be more on the nose that the Buchanans have a daughter the night before uh, Ms. Ms. Morant is shot dead. Yeah. Uh, the cycle of birth and death within just a few hours of each other. The cycle of one family who can't afford it, the rent anymore, tossed out on their ear, and a new couple ready to move in and take their place. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating to kind of watch the ways that like this, this, this almost um, organism that is this apartment just like lives essentially. Um, you kind of get the, uh, you kind of get the sense that this, uh, that, that the, 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 the frame that we're using to view this becomes a character, the frame of the stoop of this building and kind of the witness that this building has on the lives of so many people, um, kind of becomes the thing that, that binds the story together. Cause there is just so much going on. I barely, you know, that I barely even got into some of the, like the, 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 the there's, there's long scenes of just banter between the families, <laughs> That that is just like their lives together, um, and, and not just the families. I mean, this play probably, if you boiled it down to just the plot points that make up, let's just say Rose's Rose and her mother and her father and Sam, like sort of that that center through line. Although it's 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 a little hazy, but let's say right. that that center through line. If you boiled it down to just that play, first of all, that's a pretty boring play, <laughs> and second of all, it would be a. Th- uh, I mean, it would be a third the length that it is now. So what fills up the rest of it? It's all those side characters of the tenement house that you mentioned, but it's also, and this is what I think is so fascinating, a bunch of randos. Yeah. I mean, just like random people from New York City are walking through this play all the time. Again, the action of the play is all on this street in front of the house. You don't ever go inside the house. It's a one location type of play. And throughout all of what Jackson described, there are a myriad, maybe 50 or more, random human beings right. that wander through. That Sometimes they have something to do with what's going on. Like there's two or three music students that the uh, one of the couples teaches music lessons. And so there's some music students that go in and out. And at one point that has a little bit to do with the plot. One of them sees something. But there's also several music students that don't have anything to do with anything. There's mm-hmm. people that walk by and don't ever say a word. There's a whole extended scene between the police officer who's guarding the uh, like the crime scene and just like two random women who walk by. It's (laughs) probably two pages long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's all sorts of that. And I think that like uh, there's an interesting conversation to be had about the realism of this play and the naturalism of this play and also the like baby stepping into absurdism out of the theater of the grotesque of this play. Um, the, the, the way that this play is this kind of slice of life of these people on the, on the street. And so thus and so, and, and thus you need all these people walking in and out. You need this sort of visceralness and the sort of, you know, whole worlds that are a person's life just passing you by <laughs> and, and not getting to know much about them. Um, so, so you, you kind of have that in there, but you also have, just gregarious characters and and big violence <laughs> um like like the, the like just out of the blue sort of full swing into now we're now we're just like a really visceral scene where a window shatters and gunshots are heard and someone is yanked off of, off of stage. So you have the kind of interplay between, and some of the people who have tried to produce this play note the difficulty here of this uh, naturalistic play mixed with the, the theater movement uh, of the theater of the grotesque. Yeah, and so this play has its beginnings, like this project for Elmer Rice starts with a 
I, I don't even know if I guess you'd call it a play. It's called Sidewalks of New York, a project that he worked on that he was fascinated in. And it was a series of vignettes that he put together that were all just action, just scenes from streets of New York City. And there was no dialogue. It was all these vignettes, no words, just like looking at a street. What would you see? Here's I don't know how many there are in the play. All these little vignettes that make it up. And of course, that was not a hugely interesting project for audiences and producers and such. <laughs> I think it's fascinating, but you know, I, I'm only one person and they got to sell tickets. Right. So right. that out of that project idea comes street scene where he inserts dialogue and recognizable, consistent characters in a narrative, but keeps this idea of just like the kinds of people that walk through. If you focused on one little street side for 90 minutes across three different times of day or two hours or whatever it is. So here's like one of the very first stage directions, just to give you a taste. And this, what I'm about to describe, this sort of thing is throughout the, my, my script is like a hundred pages. It's throughout that, right? This is one of the first ones. A moment after the rise of the curtain, an elderly man enters at the right and walks into the house, exchanging a nod with Mrs. Fiorentino. A man munching peanuts crosses the stage from left to right. And that elderly man and the guy munching peanuts are never heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fascinating the degree to which, yeah, there's just, just so much. Um, but but I think that's also what we're leaning into, right? So uh, uh, I, I think Elmer, Elmer Rice kind of finishes up this play after a Europe trip, right? And he grows, so he grows up in New York, goes away to Europe and then comes back and sees what New York is again and kind of returns to this play and, and is like, okay, so, so here is like, there's just so much about New York <laughs> and it makes sense what you were talking about in, in the context too, of how this play has a hard time playing with, with, with an audience that doesn't know the sort of just breakneck speed and the sort of uh, uh, transient, uh, nature of the lives <laughs> of so many people in New York that can just like slip through and talk talk with people randomly and then they're just gone. Like, you never see, never hear from them again. And the way that Elmer Rice, like he he has such compassion for each individual human being and, and not just the named characters, right? So he writes this little stage direction that I just heard. He creates a life for this elderly man and Mrs. Fiorentino. You sort of get the idea that maybe that's part of their morning or their evening ritual, I guess, because it's in the evening where they walk, it's uh, walking home from work and he nods at Mrs. Fiorentino like he always does walking home. There's a guy munching peanuts. You know, he likes to munch peanuts as he walks across the stage and that just those little examples are all throughout. These are like people with stories. They, the exchange that I mentioned earlier between the policeman and the two, I get, they're like babysitters. He calls them nursemaids, but they look like they're like taking these babies around just to give them walks or whatever. And they have this extended conversation with this police officer, just random street characters. And like the, the characters have personalities. Like you sort of get the idea that this police officer is kind of a jokester. And it's like, he didn't need to write a character with like that much personality and humanity. He didn't really need to write that scene at all. But he, he like seems to have an affection and like a deep rooted sense of the way that all of these hundreds of people that you see have lives and their own narratives that float around the one that we happen to be watching today. Yeah, yeah, and you get that. So, so you certainly get that in in the sort of way that uh, uh, Rice is is uh, compassionate and hospitable towards all of these satellite characters, essentially. You, and but that continues to ring true in the main characters as well. Or, or I, I'm air quoting main because it's so hard to like say that 15 characters are main characters. But, yeah, um, really. <laughs> <laughs> but they are. They spend a lot of time on stage, and they get a lot of compassionate writing from from the writer. There's there's this this, like the the way that they all show off different elements of themselves and different moments of of either conflict or pain or or even like meanness toward each other are offset by these moments of care and 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 attention and even compassion towards each other and and this sort of like we're in this together mentality um that that this 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 uh, this apartment with all of these neighbors have with each other as they try to struggle through whatever they're going through on a particular day 
Yeah, he he. These characters all are. Uh, they're prejudiced, right? I mean, in in a way that is is vocal and verbal and present in a way that a lot of the prejudice that we end up fighting today is more subversive. This is very vocal and present prejudice. And they they blunder all over each other. They say the wrong thing. They make mistakes. They drop things. They have short tempers with each other. But, but all of that is... It doesn't feel judged by Elmer Rice. It just feels documented. Uh, I think for me, the two characters that end up sort of standing out from that, and it's almost jarring at times, and some of it I'm sure is the hundred years that have gone by, but I, I think that the character of Frank feels different. Uh, The way that he interacts with his neighbors and especially his family feels like it's uh, being being marked by Elmer Rice. This this sort of attitude uh, leads to his tragedy and the tragedy of the people around him. Um, and, and there is a moment at the end where it feels a little bit like, no, we're going to try to give him a little bit of like, a, whoops, <laughs> I was drunk. I, I'm not like that <laughs> yeah. at all. And I, d- that doesn't quite, for me, bring back around to the same sort of empathetic place that he views the other characters with. Um, and then I actually feel a little bit that way about Rose, too. It feels a, She feels a little bit less imperfect that, as than some of the other characters do. Um, if she feels a little, honestly, she feels a hundred years later, a little bit tropish, like the sort of perfect young woman, uh, attractive to everyone, never says the wrong thing. Um, and, and, and then ends up just sort of a victim of her situation as the play goes by. And, and to some degree, I think that's actually the stories that we've experienced in the past hundred years, building on the literature that was coming out at this moment where that wasn't so much a yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, so I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll hit, I'll hit Frank real quick and then I'll move to Rose. I, I agree with Frank. I think Frank, uh, kind of emerges as this problem that Rice has noticed <laughs> in, in, uh, the, the, the kind of old, the older or the not new perhaps is the better way to talk about it. The not newest, um, members of New York and America, this sort of like reclamation attitude that Frank has and an inability to pr- progress, um, with, with the way that his family needs him to, um, is being noted. And, and I agree too, with the kind of the, the, the tropishness of Rose and the way that, um, that she's that, that, that many other roles have built on this era and 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 yet there are a couple moments <laughs> where where that you almost wonder if it's breaking through into something new. Rose has a number of these lines where she says, especially to Frank and especially to Harry Easter, um, you you got this wrong. You got your you got your assumptions wrong. I can take care of myself. I'm figuring this out on my own. I don't need your help. I don't need your uh, misogyny. <laughs> I don't need your uh, yeah your your intervening into my situation. Situation. And even the choice at the end to not go with Sam, you know, in another play, that's 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 that would be the the quote unquote happy ending is well okay, but they banded together and they found love in the midst of it and they they kind of forged their nuclear family and went off and into the suburbs and lived happily ever after. That's not that's not the ending that we get. We get again Rose saying no, I'm gonna figure this out on my own and take care of my family. Um, and so, her very astute like observations that like. You know, we might be a little too young to just, <laughs> just run be, off together. It's possible that there's, there's like be rash. there's a very practical element of like, you know, Sam, if we run off together, I might get pregnant, and then we're stuck together. Right. I don't know that this is like really the right choice right now. <laughs> right, right. This is a big day, and let's just push the pause button. <laughs> Yeah, yep, yep. But yeah, but I want to return to Frank real quick because there's there's a line in the play I'm going to read it that like it hits me like a ton of bricks because of how contemporary it actually sounds. This attitude from Frank as we think about like his uh, his sort of sense of being unwilling to embrace some of the things that his neighbors are and and the way that this 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 kind of attitude feels like it has such staying power that I almost think you could write this line almost word for word into a play published in 2022, right? He he says, they're talking about um, 
uh, basically revolutions with Kaplan. And this has all been sparked by the the family, the single mother and her two kids. They're being thrown out of the apartment. All the neighbors, a lot of the neighbors at least, are expressing sympathy and empathy. How it's awful that this is happening to her. A few of this group is also saying like, well, you got to pay the rent. It's not the landlord's fault. That's the way life works. And so that that's sort of Frank's camp, of course. And he's sort of on the far extreme end of that camp as this discussion goes. This is what he says. All I'm saying is what we need in this country is a little more respect for law and order. Look at what happened to other people's homes with this divorce and one thing and another. Young girls going around smoking cigarettes and their skirts up around their necks. And a lot of long-haired guys talking about free love and birth control and breaking up decent people's homes. I tell you, it's time something was done to put the fear of God into people. Now, you know, you adjust some of those examples a little bit to a contemporary setting and the the center through line, this sort of like law and order, there's a right way that used to be and today people are messing up this traditional, right, simple, God-fearing way that society used to be. It's like, it's shockingly contemporary from the mouth of a character written by a dude a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, you you can you can almost imagine a very popular slogan about America <laughs> exiting his mouth in 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 this. Yeah, yeah, you've got this this sort of. I mean, yeah. how many politicians right now would could stand up and say, "All I'm saying is, what we need in this country is a little more respect for law and order." Yeah, right. I mean, without a blink of an eye, politicians Absolutely. could say that. Yep. Yeah, I know it's fascinating to read this play that is nearly a hundred years old and just see so many resonant themes in it, <laughs> and to kind of kind of realize that a lot of the lines in it can be said now. And be, and and that's that's I mean that's that's part of the thing that Rice is noticing, and part of the nature of the American experiment is that you continue to have these run-ins where every generation needs to do some version of this, <laughs> um, and and so it, it's just it's just interesting to kind of hear it through the voice that we talked at the beginning about how, you know, some of this language is dated. Um, certainly it wouldn't be necessarily um, uh, uh, in, in line with a lot of the things we would say today, but there's a lot of the themes that are still in resonance to with, with today. Well, and I think too that the, 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 there's some of the like more open prejudices towards each other, like we've mentioned, uh, feel, feel somewhat anachronistic, or we hope that they feel anachronistic. But the, the sort of behind the back, uh, snide remarks about someone's ethnicity or race or cultural traditions that some of the characters do throughout the play. Even that feels unfortunately painfully a little contemporary, the way that they sort of judge the otherness in others. Yeah. I, the, I feel like, so Emma Jones is the one that like ex exemplifies that posture for me. And I think if there was another character that I would add to the, the, the somewhat more, um, uh, uh, reviled characters, perhaps, <laughs> of the scripts, or or lack of redemption in a character. Um, it would be it would be Emma Jones, uh, who who just kind of constantly um undermines. Uh, people <laughs> or, or maybe undermines is too cruel, but certainly makes her expression and her opinion about them known to them. <laughs> um, and, and you see that in her, how she comments uh, on Sam and Rose being together. You see that in how she comments on just everyone, sometimes to their face um, uh, of the neighbors about their ethnicity and, and uh, how she can, there's one point where Abraham Kaplan is there reading his newspaper and she says, I just can't understand why you would be reading those funny words all the time. Um, he's reading a paper in Hebrew. Um, so, so it's just all this, it's kind of all this kind of, uh, uh, contention with her and, and her neighbors. And she winds up being present in most of the scenes of the play. Um, probably, I mean, there's, there's, there's no one who's in every scene of the play, but of, of the characters who's around the most, she is certainly one of them. So we we spend quite a bit of time with her as she gets one of the last lines, of, I believe the last line of the play. Um, she kind of goes on talking and talking as the curtain drops. So, so she kind of has this, this odd, not odd, this, I think pretty intentional, um, uh, divisiveness to her that, that pervades much of the play. And, and, and thinking t uh, more and more about like that kind of person, like, first of all, let me, let me say that Jackson and I know some wonderful people named Karen. So this is not yes. a disparity on the name Karen, but 
Mrs. Jones is like in our contemporary cultural lexicon, kind of a Karen, right? I mean, <laughs> complains about everything. She got like a little purse dog that she walks right. around the street right. with. Yes. Now, you know, she's not wealthy, of course, and so that's a big part of it. But there's a so there's other weird little contemporary things that ring true too, like. I, one thing that I noticed, I wrote it down because it was so striking to me. When they're talking about the single mother and her children being tossed out on the street, Kaplan talks about how the building owner is like out on his yacht. That's the phrase he uses. And like yachts are very much what's in our right. contemporary yeah. lexicon, right? It's <laughs> very common true. for us to say like so-and-so bought their third yacht and their workers aren't making enough to live on, right? It's like yachts have held on for a hundred years <laughs> as this thing. There's a whole extended discussion about Columbus and whether or not he really discovered America. That right. is surprisingly relevant and contemporary. And an even more maybe insidious thread is the issue of con- consent which runs through the entirety of the play. Uh, Several of the female characters, especially Rose, have some very harassing encounters, which uh, unfortunately do still feel kind of contemporary. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's there's 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 so many things in it that that continue to um uh get get rehashed again. I, I mean, I mean to 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 lean in even more, the 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 play culminates in this guy taking a gun upstairs and shooting a bunch of of his family. So you have that that issue in this play as well, and the and the inability of 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 him him to kind of control himself. Um, so so you have there's all these all these issues being still worked out. You in in the I think in the backdrop of this American system that that Rice is noticing that continues to be worked out in our American system that doesn't seem to be going away anywhere. And that's probably why this play continues to have a voice in some way, even though, as you said, like you need to know New York to get some of it. But you also just need to know America to get some of it. No, I, I totally agree, and and you you get this like plethora of dialects and ways of speaking, and there there just aren't that many cities in the world. There are there's more than just New York, obviously, but there aren't that many cities in the world that are such a melting pot like New York City is, like Chicago is, like New Orleans is, uh, and there are I'm sure international cities like that too. I don't know them as well, but there there's sort of a uh, a specialness to the way that all these different kinds of people are put into a claustrophobic situation. And that, that claustrophobia is added on even more to by the heat. And the heat, a hundred years later, the, the addition of the heat, I, I will say, feels a little tropish. But I, it, I think it's because <laughs> it's become a trope since this play came around. But well, yeah, this, yeah. this oppressive, weighty heat layered onto claustrophobic situations... Uh, this play executes it very well for all of it feeling like, yeah, well, of course it's hot. They're like stuck together in these small apartments and (laughs) things are boiling over. Of course it's going to be hot. Yeah, yeah. It's almost an aside, but it's interesting to note that like heat in New York and heat in the big cities ends up being the thing that drives people mad so often. You got this, you've got a streetcar, you've got all the way to today within the Heights and Hamilton. You got Gatsby, you got In the Heights, you got Hamilton, all all these plays. Summer in the city just like is a recipe for disaster. Uh, there's there's so much about this play that we could continue talking about. So many more themes and 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 so many more characters that we could zoom in on. Alas, we are running down to the end of our time, but there's so much more. There's so much more to talk about, and we love to keep talking about it with all of you out there in podcast land. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. If there's anything about our conversation or about the play that you'd love to get in on, hit us up on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about street scene with you absolutely if you like this conversation or any of our other conversations you can recommend this podcast to your family and friends send them to podbean where we're hosted as well as google play apple Podcasts, spotify or just like us on facebook the link appears every monday to the new episode uh, so that you can access it or the less technologically savvy folks in your life can easily find it So until next week, when we are talking about another script, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.